Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Jonathan Vidoski, founder and CEO of Maze. In this episode, Joe shared how Maze emerged out of a need to validate assumptions fast about a previous startup he founded. He continued to share how the prototype evolved into the company we know today. We then dove into how Joe and the team are introducing a sales motion on top of their existing product-led strategy and the challenges that come with it. Finally, we discussed how they segment and analyze their churn and retention and how they use the segmentation to prioritize their product roadmap. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode. And if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, man, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. I actually like how that flows. Hey, Joe, welcome to the show. For the listeners, Joe is the founder and CEO of Maze, the testing platform empowering product marketing teams to test, learn, and act rapidly. Prior to Maze, Joe was the UX lead at BAM.tech. And prior to that, he founded a company called Ping, a game-dedicated messaging service to stay in touch with your gaming friends. So actually today, I want to start with my first question is, what was the goal of Ping and what happened to it? That's a very good question. So Ping was actually the premise of Maze, funny enough. As you said, before Maze, I was leading UX and research in different agencies in Paris. My role was teaching people how to design, teaching people how to do research, and then teaching people how to sell these things. And so the fun story was, this is when we really experienced the pain of what we are trying, now trying to solve with Maze, but that's not when Maze got started. Maze got started in this previous startup called Ping, what we really wanted to do was, so <laughs> at the time, Discord didn't really exist. And we saw the same problem that Discord was trying to solve, which is you looked at the way that gamers were communicating and you looked at the way that games were scattered. So there was no longer one platform people were playing on PlayStation, Xbox, Steam, wherever. How do you reconcile your gaming list in one platform? And how do you reconcile communication in one platform? That's the premise of what we were trying to build. And so we started hacking our way into building a product over weekends with, with Thomas, my co-founder, and another co-founder. And at the time, funny enough, we stumbled upon something that we liked. We stumbled upon, okay, so we have this app that allows you to connect with your friends and that allows you to start conversation, what we call the ping, uh, to get started playing. And so very early on, we got backing from Static, which is the biggest and largest pro game team in the world. And so because of that backing, we had literally thousands of people in waiting lists eager to try out our product. But the reality was at the time, we didn't have a product yet. What we had was this very in-depth envisioned prototype of what we wanted to create. And so we thought, how do we get this prototype in front of the eyes of these thousands of people that are eager to create our product and see which flows are working, which features they want to prioritize, basically understanding what we needed to build. 
And so at the time we looked for solution online to do that. And the reality for us was all the solutions, they were transposing a process that was long and expensive, which is the face-to-face -face interview into a process that's long and expensive, but online, which is the video recording, watch the same amount of hours of footage that you would do in a face-to-face -face interview. And so we hacked our way into building what would become leading maze in the future. So we downloaded the indigenous prototype. We started putting analytics on top of everything with this idea that if we are able to collect data at scale at the prototyping phase, then we would actually be able to understand massive volume of insights without having to look at multiple sessions. Send out the first test to 5,000 people, got 2.5 thousand answers in two hours. So coming from a world where five responses in five weeks was basically opening champagne, that was, that was a treasure trove of data. And that, that's how we got started building Maze. That's how I was obsessed with Maze at the time. And the reality to talk to answer your question more directly, Discord arrives three months after we started the platform. And it's very, very hard to compete against people that do things extremely well. So we were looking at them and we were like, this is such a strong vision. This is such a strong execution. This is such a strong understanding of the market. Was, yeah, I'm happy we gave up after a few, a year, basically. We looked at them, we looked at them very well, like, this is, let's be admitted. <laughs> it's interesting because when I was looking at it, it's like, that was one of the things I think, this sounds very familiar. Like this sounds like yeah. Discord and thinking like, why would you stop in that vision when uh, obviously clearly today, like Discord exists as a beast in the markets and. Uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And, and this called became users of Maze as well. So we came full circle on this, wow. on this journey. So, yeah, there's a good storytelling behind it. Yeah, that's super cool. So then you started out from there, like really realizing that's okay. There's something that we have here now uh, in this, like we've built a really uh, elaborate prototype. We're not going to be able to compete in this market because we've, uh, Discord just come along. Like, how did you move forward from there? What was the next steps in getting the business started? And because at the moment you just had a prototype and you had your own analytics like telling you. What was happening? That's a very, very good question. Yeah, I think it's something that they never, never shared publicly, but when we started the previous company, we, it was a co-venture with Fnatic. So with this programming company and the CEO of Fnatic at the time was a very experienced CEO, right? Multiple times CEO, et cetera. When he invested, he did something with us that uh, I kind of advise everyone to replicate. Started the company and he sat down with us and he said, what does failure look like in a year from now? What does, wh when do we say the company is not working? Because we can drag this on forever, right? So let's sit down, let's write three metrics that we think if we not have succeeded on that, uh, we'll kill the company. That's what happened really, is that a year down the line, we looked at our activation metric, we looked at the number of users that we're getting and the retention rate, and the three of them were terrible. On top of that, this obsession for maids led me to tell Thomas, my co-founder, I'll take my old job back as in UX and I'll force customers to try out the solution. That's how we actually got to build the product. So it was, there was the MVP of NMVP. We were at the time generating the heat maps manually. It was a whole mess. But the reality was we were seeing the value. The first customer I got in the agency I was working at was a big French bank with a green logo that I'm not legally allowed to name. And so this big French bank, they didn't want to research for all the reasons that I mentioned before, which is it's long, it's expensive. They didn't care about the five data points. They wanted something more concrete and faster, right? Yeah. I told them we have this new platform and it will allow you to go from the product we've already created to actually data and insights uh, that we can use right now to make a better product. They said, okay, we send out the test to 50 of their customers. The test got back an hour later with like 35 answers. My client looks at the results at the time. He goes to my boss and said, if this was available last year, we could literally have saved millions of dollars in development. And so for us, that really started shaping the value and the vision of the company, right? Because all of a sudden it's not about the tool and it's not even about research. It's about how can we rethink the product development process to include more data at the point where data was unavailable. And so 
we kept on iterating with customers. So very qualitatively collecting insights on what's working, what's not working. And at some point we decided to take the leap and to actually release to, to the world. We released on product and we, and after a day, basically, uh, we had users from Airbnb and Amazon and eBay and Uber and the whole world. So we are very lucky in that. I think we found product market fit very early on with the product that we created, because I think the gap was so massive in the market that the time to market was really strong. Prototyping and design was just exploding. And yet that led us to, to find product market fit and to, to actually start the company. So what was like the original then was just really bringing together like a prototype and analytics in one. You say that was like the key differentiator. Yeah, I would say that it's almost, it's two things. So by doing that's a product innovation, right? That all of a sudden you can integrate your envision and prototype inside, inside the product. But this product innovation led to a positioning innovation that all of a sudden we were not selling research to researchers. We are selling research to the designers with the organization. And so what research has struggled so much with for the past 20 years is how do we get more embedded into the product things? And so by unlocking a product innovation, we basically made research happen everywhere within the org, right? All of a sudden, every product iteration, the product function started being shared with CEO and VP level and product managers and product marketers. So we started getting a research exposure the same way that Figma made design exposed to the rest of the organization. That's what we really unlocked. So it's funny because what we did is exactly the opposite of what I advise companies to do, which is we didn't necessarily start it from the vision down. We have this very vision 10 years down the line. We started from a product need that we had. And from this product need that we had, vision kind of bloomed, basically. So I won't recommend that to anyone, uh, but yeah. for us, that, that worked. It's a hard thing. I think we were talking about this before the show as well. It's like when you, especially as a founder, when you start out with one vision and then the mark tells you something different to, to be able to give up on that sort of vision and move with the markets. Because ultimately, if you can't meet the market where they are today, there's no point in having this elaborate vision because it's never going to exist. Um, exactly. I see the exactly. pros and cons in both. Yeah, I think exactly. Your vision has to live in reality. And also, I think that's why CEOs need to connect often with their users in that it's a very different story that you tell your team, you tell yourself, you tell the investors, and then that the world will actually, that's three very different stories. So oftentimes, especially at the company scales, you get disconnected to this end user that tells you that's really cool. What you think that's excellent. So uh, maybe in 10 years down the line, this will be what the, the future will look like. The reality yeah. is that today, this is what I need. So getting the, getting back to reality is critical, I think, to your mission success. Yeah, it's the most important thing, I think. And you mentioned speaking to your team, speaking to investors and things like this. Like when you're doing one-to-one sales, I'm talking about sales because you're selling to your team members, you're selling to investors and stuff. It's easy to get excited when people get excited by that. But the only thing that really matters is when customers get excited and they pull out their checkbooks or they pull out their credit cards and they, they pay you money because yeah. like getting investment is not validation that you've built anything or have anything there. It's really about the market and the customer at the end of the day. A little bit forward yeah. now as well. Maze, obviously you've grown uh, quite a lot from where you are today. We broke up for a second. We'll have to cut Yo, this. 100. Because <laughs> if you just cut out for a second there, I'm going to start again. So fast forwarding a bit now, and obviously Maze uh, has grown quite a bit today. You mentioned 30 people now in the company challenges are quite a bit different today. Like what's one of the bigger challenges you're facing today as a company? So I would think there's multiple challenges that, that come with the scale where we are right now. So we're fully remote. So for us, communication has been scaling communication as we scale has been, a, has been a big challenge. You, you go from having everyone doing pretty much everything. So I think the way I look at the company building is you start as the CEO, you're the chief, every single officer. So you're embedded in every team and your team should be 10 people. And then the company starts scaling and you start to get your whole funnel, starting from how do we acquire users to how do we uh, create great products to how do we activate those users to how do we manage that, et cetera. And for each of those lines in your 
a spreadsheet, you basically have one person that owns five lines, right? And then as the company continues maturing, it's every line in this spreadsheet is owned by a team. It's owned by a pod that actually just works on delivering specific improvement to this specific line. And so how do you communicate clearly where the company is headed to all of these teams so they work together is has been quite a, a challenge. I think the second thing is um, we're graduating. I think that I mentioned that also before the call, but there's kind of this playbook today on company building that I really like, which is the democratization for X for Y for us. At Maze, it's, we're trying to democratize research for companies of all sizes in all industries and for everyone within those organizations. That's how we really think about the mission. And so this works great when you're not talking to the enterprise customers. This works great bottoms up, right? The less mature organization, the smaller organization, really, they are bodied into your vision because the reality is that they didn't have the maturity level to do better anyway. Research is going to be spread out, data is going to be spread out. So for us, one of the challenges now is thinking about how do we unlock more and more value and mature with the enterprise customers that we have and mature with the type of customers we want to attract as well. Yeah, and I think that's quite a big shift in the company as well, especially when, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like Maze is predominantly product-led uh, up until now, self-serve. You mentioned actually before the call that you've just uh, brought on sale. This is a big shift. Like how are you managing that shift as CEO? Like how are things changing within the org? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you said, historically, we are product-led and sales-assisted. So our motion is really about product leads everything. The growth is entirely led by product. We have very similar loops to a type form of SurveyMonkey, where the product by design is spread out because the test has to be shared, and then a percentage of those users will become users of our platform. Layering on the sales-assisted is always very tricky, and doing it right as well is tricky, right? Understanding what, when is the right time to actually put in more sales that will have more of a nurturing capacity inside the org. So we hired our VP sales two quarters ago now, they build out the sales team. And so now it's a game of getting better at nurturing, getting better at understanding our ICP, getting better at understanding which value can really extract from our first customers. But on top of that, I would say that it's also a very big cultural shift that needs to happen. And so for example, a month and a half ago, I wrote a letter that I called Going Enterprise. And it's just a letter that I wrote to the company explaining like, why are we doing the things that we're doing? We're not going to be self-led. That's never going to be the case. But we're going to serve more and more the enterprise customers. And for that, the need and the maturity that the product will have will have to grow and we'll have to support the sales effort in its journey. So I think it's important that people understand that going enterprise is a luxury in itself, right? That yeah. you get the chance to sell to the enterprise customers is something that not all companies will have the chance of doing. So, yeah. Absolutely. It's not easy as well. Like I think, we're, again, similarly for us at Avrio, we almost the inverse now is like, when we first launched the product, we had a lot of ins uh, like attraction from more enterprise and larger orgs, but really we don't have the luxury as a small startup to support them yeah. even yet with all the requirements for that. Almost doing like the inverse of like, how can we make the product more product led? What can we do to serve earlier stage and smaller businesses? And I definitely think like the stage you're at now is like, it's part of growing up. I think when you start to become a successful SaaS business and you start to realize, it. and I think this is one of the misconceptions I don't like about this product led growth and like term that's been popularized on LinkedIn because people think it's just like exclusive and like if you're product led, like you just do yeah. product and that's it. But really like when you get to a certain size and scale, if you really want to take advantage of that size and scale and to build a business into anything meaningful, you're going to need to lay on sales. But it's like figuring out what you're doing now. It's like figuring out the right way to do that. Exactly. And, exactly. and it's also understanding that a sales has a nurturing function. So the sales layering is not outbound and cold calling, right? It's really about 
how do we create a better journey for our customers that have a better needs and larger needs and more mature needs? And also, as you said, I think that a lot of companies have been taken as examples. So you have the classic example of Atlassian that never had a sales rep for 10 years. And you have the examples of Slack. And the reality is that a lot of them have actually came back to what they said earlier on. Slack is losing to teams just because they haven't identified early enough. And so there's a lot of companies that now retract from what they've actually said in the past. And it makes sense. The product-led labeling is being created right now. Product-led growth is a five-year-old term. So it's, yeah. we nothing is Bible, basically. Nothing is gospel at this point. For sure. And I like those examples you mentioned as well, like Atlassian and Slack. And they will eventually come around to realizing that if you want to sell into these large enterprises, there's a need for sales. And Exactly. So. exactly. So again, like uh, going with this model, then product-led, and uh, in my mind, just thinking to some similar businesses, I think churner retention, the nature of the show today, can be challenging for a business like yours itself. Has there been anything interesting in the way that you've come across the challenge at Maze? And what would you say is unique about your approach to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Churner has always been a, a key question mark at, at Mates on how do we even, how do we compute churn? What is the right way to think about churn on our end? And I think, so I, I hate talking about churn as the end all, fit all type of, uh, there's no solution to churn, right? Churn is just something that's going to be bound to happen within your product. I think for us, it's been about understanding what is the natural usage that people would get out of our product and how does that change across different sides of transition, different industries so that we get better at understanding the churn. And so, more importantly, at understanding which channel we really wanted to improve and which channel we didn't really want to improve. Yeah. And so for us, internally, what's interesting is that we have this sentence that we use all the time, which is, at Maze, we win when testing and research is seen as a cultural shift within the organization, and we lose when testing and research is seen as an ad hoc activity. What that really translates to is that there's two usage that we see at Maze, right? There's a usage that's purely transactional, that's I use Maze as a one-off testing platform when I need to actually run a test for the smaller companies or the companies that don't have the level of maturity to actually embed research in their processes. And there's the key example when we actually change the culture within the organization, which is we are looking to make research something happening at every point in time in the product development process. And so we could look at all of these blended, which is what we used to do for a long time. And we were like, how do we solve for, right? How do we solve for this number we don't know how to impact? Then when you start actually separating these two chains, you start looking at actually the real picture. You want to improve the one that, that for the people that actually the successful people with your product. And the other one, you're going to have a much, much harder fight. You're going to fight against the natural frequency of usage of your product for personas that, that don't have the maturity level. And getting people to a maturity level gets more than product usage, right? It's more than creating great templates. It's literally evangelization maturity within the org. It's a lot of work. So for us, thinking about splitting these two entities and looking at how we can improve churn for the entity that we wanted to actually solve for was really uh, the game changer. And we had a conversation with Andre, the, the CEO at, uh, at Miro about this. And they have something very interesting to say about this as well, which is at Miro, the way they look at churn is that for them, success is collaboration, right? So they have paying customers that are team of individuals, right? People that just want to brainstorm within the Miro product. Even though this revenue is technically SaaS, if you're not three people using the platform, Miro doesn't consider this revenue as SaaS revenue, monthly recurring revenue. They consider it NDR. And so for us, it's almost this shift as well. It's how do we think about this revenue? Does an individual using Maze from a company below 100 people, is this actual MRR or is this going to change so fast that it doesn't really matter that we account for it MRR? So I think that it's a perception shift. And this perception shift allow you to rethink where you want to make your investment solving for churn. 
Yeah. Yeah. I like that actually. And it's something we've discussed something similar in the past with Emmerich Ono about splitting your churn into what's controllable versus what's uncontrollable. This is a little bit of a step further. And I think you mentioned previously, like Typeform, I think similarly like Hotjar, there's different usage patterns and there's different teams of the levels of maturity that are always going to be like great fit customers versus those that aren't. And I think, especially in the case of something like Maze, you do have a lot of this like project use cases where it's like working on a project and when they come off and it's once off and similar to like Typeform is like, I'm going to launch a survey, I get my results and then it's a one and done sort of thing, like you said with Miro as well. And Blending that in with your total user base and churn can really look frightening, I think, at the end of the day, where it's more probably yeah. something to do with pricing and packaging and figuring out, okay, like, how can we serve this audience that's coming on a project basis, like once-off and thing, and how can then we make sure that we're extracting the value we really need to be from the like our ideal customer profile and who we're really building yeah, for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And on top of that, I just want to add as well that also because you're product-led and just like a type form, just like a hotjar, the reality as well is that you have less control of who gets to use your platform. So it's also that you'll get the, the blending, you'll get a schizophrenic company because on one end, you'll try to push for churn to go down. On the other end, your product that loops will attract a really wide range of type of users and customers, which include people that will be these type of customers that will be high churn. So you yeah. cannot on, on one end, try to push for your product that motion to go up and on the other end, try to go for your blended churn to go down. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. You need to just understand the different segments because that was also something I mentioned, like Emmerich with uh, Emmerich, we discussed from Aurora Pulse was how they bucketed their churn was really looking at what are the reasons for churn. And if it was like going out of business or I have no project or uh, my close down, I think like those are outside of their control. So they wouldn't even consider that as like loss. Uh, that's nothing that we could improve. And then they would focus on what were the reasons that they could actually improve. So it was like, it's too buggy. It's too X, Y, Z. And then having that as a pulse, they could see that they reduce like the two buggy uh, section this month that they reduce, and then they'll actually make an impact on general retention as opposed to them, like trying to solve for something that was never within their reach to be able to, like, I'm not going to help you from going out of business sort of thing, which I also found very interesting. So that's super interesting. Hopefully the tool does do that for you, but, and you end up figuring <laughs> that out, but it's, I guess we're not building magic ones uh, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Interesting from that perspective, like how did you go about figuring this out and like understanding what the chunks were going to be, like who the, the use cases were, what was the methodology you took there to get there? Yeah. So hey, we got a lot of help. So at Maze, we have a, a very strong advisory board of people that have been there, done that multiple times. One of them is Elena Bernard, who was the. SVP growth at SurveyMonkey and then the CMO at Miro and a lot of reframing how you think about things much more than a specific process. So it's um, basically what we do very regularly is that we review our model. So what is our acquisition model? What is our modification model, our retention model? And for all of these models, we think about, do we have the right engine or is it just lacking fuel? Or how should we think about the engine that we have today and we need to put the next stage? We look at the little activation model. And I think that's how we started figuring it out, right? Because at the time we were looking at this retention model, we were looking at this and said, how can we improve this X percent number that we're trying to improve? And so the way that we went very holistically with Elena, well, let's try to see who is the churner within the organization. How are they behaving? Which companies do they come from? Which industry? So let's try to get a better understanding. What does churn really mean within your org? And then from here, which churn you can actually impact, right? Where, where do you want to impact? Because strategically, what you could say is we want to attract less of these uh, high churner customer or strategically, you can say, I want to expand the ones that are actually performing and succeeding with the platform. And that's two very different strategic directions that you can take. For us, we obviously made the choice of going for expanding the ones that are successful with the platform. I think that's where you typically get the most success. And if you 
end up focusing on the audience that is successful, you can help bring others along to that successful stakes as well uh, along the way. Because if you're trying to build to save users that aren't great fits to begin with, like you end up building a whole bunch of crap that maybe uh, your ideal customer yeah. profile is not really <laughs> looking for, trying to serve an audience that's not uh, who you're meant to be serving. But it's tough to figure this all out. Cool. Actually, we're almost running out of time. So I want to make sure I save some time for a couple of questions, ask every guest. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You join a new company. Channel retention is not doing good at this company. You, the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Joe, you've got 90 days to figure this out. You really need to turn things around or we screwed. You're in charge. The key is here that you're not allowed to say, okay, I'm going to go and speak to customers, figure out what the pain points is or set up a maze and try and understand and get some insights back fast. You're just going to run with a tactic blindly that you've seen work in the past and use that and hope that it works at this company that you've just joined. What would you do? Oh my God. This, this, a, this sounds absolutely terrible. So I'm not allowed to talk to users. I'm not allowed to have any form of conversation. Do you have access to data, any form of data? No, like no, it's, no. Just, go. it's just, just taking a tactic <laughs> that you've seen work well to reduce churn fast. My God, this is the opposite from what I recommend to everyone. What I would do, my God, I would probably stop and I'm not even allowed to stop understanding the data. What, what am I supposed to do here? Um, I think I would try to understand first how the pricing is set up so that because churn is a function of the two things of a customer that we're getting that are getting lost and b the expansion motion I try to actually get people to 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 a better expansion path the second thing is the onboarding journey right i would think that product of the problem that we see on the retention side comes from people getting not properly onboarded which is the case for 90 percent of the companies that we see so working on the onboarding journey to get people to actually activate better and get to the aha moment better. We have these two things, A, getting more people to activate and B, getting more people to expand, meaning creating a more coherent pricing journey and more coherent expansion journey, we'll get to a better retention. But again, not advising that, this sounds absolutely terrible. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It's, it is a trick question in the sense that it's hard to do anything in, in such a short period. Most of the time, it's normally things like Dunning, uh, focusing on Dunning account stuff, but your points around onboarding, I think this is where the biggest impact really comes. And like you said, like 90% yeah. of companies the issue is really about getting people to activate and it's that first uh, initial experience that's so critical to get right. Yeah. What's one thing that you know today about trainer retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Hmm. They wish you knew when I got started in my career. I think that we talk so much about it that we don't really understand that it's such a lagging metric and it's the last boss of the game, right? Reality of it is if you're trying to impact churn and retention, you're going to fail. What you really want to impact is the rest of the journey. And churn and retention is kind of the function of all of this, right? And so it gives a lot of anxiety. I talk to a lot of very early stage founders that are like, oh my God, my retention is terrible and my uh, net dollar retention is terrible and I don't know how to handle this. And the, the reality is that A, you don't necessarily have the volume to really know what's working, what's not working. And B, focus on the things that you can actually impact. It's uh, like the YC advice that they give you. Of think about when you have 10,000 customers, think about how you get 10 customers this week, right? It's uh, focus on the, the things where you can actually have an impact. So I think that that's what I would have wanted to know because at the time, this is a very anxiety-driven conversation. Yeah, I like that. And definitely it is. It's a mix of so many different parts. That's like the whole premise of the show, really. It's like trying to illustrate that like from your positioning to your marketing, to sales, to product, exactly. like all throughout the customer's lifecycle journey, there's this impact and this, this metric that we talk about churn is really just the last uh, result. It's like a result of all the bad missteps that have happened along that journey. So focusing earlier on and fixing that is really going to help with the end results. And uh, yeah, 
Very cool, Joe. So is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Is there anything they should be aware of or you want to point them to today? Do you mean in terms of resource or just in, in general, life? anything in life, work, church? I'll give it up <laughs> to you. Not much. If you're a research team, obviously, or a product team in general, come and check out Mates. We'd love, we'd love to see there. Apart from that, I've been starting Succession as a show and it's incredible. So if you haven't watched that, I would highly recommend watching that. But yeah, I think that's pretty much it on my end. Nice. All right. So definitely check out Maze. We'll make sure to drop notes in the show. And if you're not watching Succession already, maybe check that out. I might have to start the show. Cool, Joe. I really appreciate the time today. It's been fantastic catching up with you. And I wish you best of luck now going into the new year. Thank you, my friend. I'll talk to you very soon again. And thanks everyone for listening as well. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.